Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. So we are going to be in Jonah 1, um, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that, that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let not on us innocent blood, lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as, it is, as is pleasing to you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonas, for reading. Yeah, he's Jonas. We're going to be talking about Jonah, just to be clear. Uh, You know, no one's getting tossed in the belly of a fish today not the reader of scripture. So my name's Jamie, and if you're new here, uh, so glad you've joined us today. Why don't we just start by praying and seeking the Lord together. Father, we need your help. Open our eyes to the truth that we see in your word. And as we continue to study this book, I pray that we would become more intimately aware of your mercy, affected by your mercy, and would it, would it change us that you'd be glorified? We thank you for your mercy, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be learning about uh, two different truths, a truth about our identity and a truth about God's mercy. But before we talk about them, let's kind of jump into the text and the story. So, you know, from the last few weeks as we've been in Jonah, uh, the story of Jonah is that he was called to go to a place called Nineveh to preach uh, repentance to the folks that were there. Uh, And uh, he doesn't go there. Rather, he goes and gets on a ship that is headed uh, basically to the opposite side of the world, at least at that time in the world as they knew it. And as they are going uh, the other direction, a big uh, tempest, uh, storm uh, comes upon and God sends a storm upon this boat. And as it comes upon Jonah, he kind of walks down into the, the, the ship and he takes a nap, one of those big hard naps uh, that you can't wake up from, apparently. And as everybody's going crazy in the ship, they're tossing stuff off because they're, they're afraid that they're going to die. The 
captain of the ship comes down and he wakes up Jonah, right? And he's like, what are you doing sleeping? Wake up, cry out to your God, we're crying out to our gods. And Jonah probably in his stupor or whatever, he doesn't like respond right away. In the text, we don't see him respond. We don't see him go, oh, we should pray right now. What we see is we see the rest of those on the ship, the mariners go, and they try to figure out what is going on as we come to verse seven. Jonah does nothing. They're trying to do something. And it says, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this is. So they cast lots to find out it's Jonah. Now, before we go on in the story, I just want to, I want to mention casting lots because even though this isn't a big part of the story, uh, it inevitably, when, we, when you read it, you're kind of like casting lots to make a decision. Should we be casting lots to make decisions? That sounds interesting. I just want to briefly briefly talk about casting lots in the Bible. So this is, this is a little bit of an aside, not the main part of the story. Like we do see in the Old Testament, they would cast lots where they uh, selecting a leader or in the Old Testament law, there were provisions or things where they would cast lots for uh, things to make decisions. We see that those who were crucifying Jesus, the soldiers, they were casting lots for Jesus' garments. Now in that situation, that's kind of more like gambling. They all wanted this one piece of Jesus' clothing, so they're gambling, so I don't think that's talking about that. But yet, you see in the book of Acts, the last time we see casting of lots is when the, the apostles are replacing Judas, right? Judas betrayed Jesus, and they were replacing him, and they cast lots to uh, find uh, the, the Matthias who would replace Judas. So that's kind of just a brief overview of casting lots. So, so do we cast lots to make decisions in our lives? I think the accent or the emphasis in the New Testament is, is not on let's, let's just take the easy way out when we need to make decisions. I think the accent is on prayer because as you have trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. And the Bible says that if we lack wisdom, you know, in the book of James, we should ask God who gives it generously. And we have the canon of Scripture. So when we pray, we want to pray with our Bibles open. Now, does that mean that there won't ever a time when there's like a secondary matter and we have to flip a coin because we can't just come to an agreement on something? That doesn't mean that that won't happen. But I just want to point us to the reality that we have the Spirit of God within us. And let's not just be flippantly about making decisions, particularly big decisions. We should seek God's face with our Bibles open. We should get counsel and wisdom like Proverbs tells us to by going to our small group and getting wisdom about those you know, various big decisions in our life. Okay, that's it about that. Okay, not to distract us from the story, but inevitably whenever I read that, I go, oh, I'm intrigued by lots. So that's that. Back to the story. So they cast lots. They discover that the lot falls on Jonah, and what's interesting is they don't immediately go, hey, this guy's the one at fault. Let's just go grab him and toss him because he's the problem. No, they begin to ask him questions, questions about like his identity, who he is, where did you come from? Because there's this reality they discover as Jonah tells them the story of where he came from. So at the end of verse 10, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we don't have all the details of what Jonah said, but we know that he described the situation and they want to know what's going on because obviously Jonah's God is the one that's doing something and they are freaked out about it. They want to know what's going on. He's a prophet of the Lord who's, who's leaving the presence of the Lord. So they go to him and say, well, what should we do? So this guy's the problem. What should we do? And Jonah's like, well, toss me 
toss me in. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be remorseful at this point. He doesn't seem to be like, I really care for you guys and I'm really burdened. He says, he says, toss me in. Remember where the Lord had called him to go. If they toss him in, Jonah isn't going to. Yes, he got on the ship. He's not going to fulfill the mission that God had called him to. It doesn't seem like Jonah is repentant in this situation. But yet, it seems like the mariners have a level of character and burden that Jonah doesn't have because he says, toss them in. I don't know about you, but if I'm on a boat and it's doing this, and some guy says, toss me in, I'm going to pause and wonder, but like, yeah, it seems like we should save everybody else. But no, they have, they have conviction because they're like, well, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to die, but, but, but do we want to commit murder? Like, do we want to throw someone to their death? And so what, how do they respond? Well, they keep rowing. And oftentimes we can do that, right? In our faith, when it gets hard, we're not sure what decision to make. Well, let's just work harder. And they work harder and the sea grows more and more tempestuous. Like we've already heard that a couple of times, right? So it gets bad and then it gets worse and then it gets even worse. And they finally get to the place where they need to relent. They need to cry out to the Lord. They realize Jonah's God is the God that needs to hear us, not all these other gods that we've been crying out to. And they cry out to the Lord in verse 14. Lord, let us not perish because of what this man's done. Lord, let, let us not also, don't, don't give us the weight of this innocent life. May, that, may his death not be upon us because you've done this. And, and so they, they throw him into the sea. Now, for us, it kind of, we can read it in the calm of the seats that we're in. But remember, everything is doing this right now. And they toss him in the sea, and then immediately it stops. I mean, when storms come up, if you're out by the lake and there's storms coming up, they'll come in and they'll, they'll there. And if you're there when the kind of the worst part of the storm passes, it kind of slows down a little bit. And the, the, the rain goes from blowing against the side of everything to kind of starting to trickle, and then it kind of slowly calms down, and sometimes that happens over hours of time. But in this situation, it happens like that. I imagine like the calm that you see when the, when the lake or the sea kind of looks like glass, and you can see a re reflection in it. And so these men are immediately confronted with the God of the universe. And so they respond by fearing the Lord. Some commentators say, I don't think, I don't think they came to know the Lord. We don't, we don't specifically exactly know, but yet the interesting thing is most people who like cry out, do the foxhole prayer. When life's going hard, they cry out to God and say, God, save us. And then when the storm kind of ceases or dies down, they go back to their life. But that's the opposite with these sailors. They cry out to the Lord after the storm is over. And they even make effort. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. They make vows. We don't know exactly know particularly what those were, how they learned how to do it, but yet God radically changed them in that moment. So what are we supposed to take from this? Is it don't tick God off? It won't go well with you? 
is that, hey, when you find out that someone is the problem, toss them over. Like, get rid of them, and it will just get more peaceful. No, we are going to look at two truths this morning, a truth about identity and a truth about God's mercy. So the first one, a truth about identity that we find in the text. We live out our identity. We live out our identity. Our our identity is what drives what we think and then what we do. And the sailors are getting at Jonah's identity in verse 8 as they start to ask him questions, like, what's your occupation? They want to know what's his purpose in life. What gives you meaning? What drives you? Where do you come from? Where's your country? Where do you feel like you belong? Where do you feel safe? Where do you feel most at home? Who are your people? Many times in that, in that t- day and age, when you asked who your people were, that also kind of identified who your God was, who you worshiped. <clears throat> kind of like, you know, oftentimes there are some places, some countries where you know if someone comes from there, they're going to say they're part of that particular religion just because they come from that place. But that happens here. We have houses of worship, and I'm not talking about church buildings. Like, there are stadiums. There are social media platforms. People identify. I experience this uh, every time I put on the T-shirt of the football team I grew up rooting for. When I put that on and I go anywhere, whether we were in Washington, D.C., or I'm visiting friends and we're in Chicago, inevitably I will meet people who root for that team in the far reaches of the world, it feels like. Because I'm, to them, I'm attached to that people and and, and when we have the same place of worship, they don't realize I just kind of enjoy the game of football. It's not my life. If they lose, I, I'm not going to die. But we identify with. And, and our identity is revealed where we find our significance. So if you were to answer this phrase, I am significant because of fill in the blank. Where do you find your significance? Is it when you have wealth? Is it the job that you have? Are you significant because uh, you've become a successful mom doing all the things that successful moms have, right? All your children come to know the Lord. You're perfect. You know how to make meals and do all these amazing things. Like, we could go on the list of each different thing. What, what is, how are you significant? Our identity reveals, <clears throat> is revealed in where we, where we have a place, I am welcomed by blank. I'm welcomed by them. Is your identity by the, the friend group that you have? I mean, in our, in our world right now, pe- people are trying to, uh, there's an identity crisis. No secret, right? People are trying to find their significance in all kinds of stuff. And they're finding their significance and identity in, in places that feel safe to them, at least for a time. But friends, the place people should feel safest is here. And I'm not talking about Harvest Lakeshore. I'm talking about in the church of Jesus Christ. 
because this is the place where people should feel loved. This is the place where people should feel encouraged, cared for, accepted. And I'm not saying that we're compromising the gospel to say everybody can be anything or that we would stop pursuing righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. But people should be confronted with a people whose identity is not in the external stuff, not in the desires that come out of them. Their identity should be in and rooted in Christ because we are in Christ. And Jonah's identity was clear because when they asked him questions, he answers with, I'm a Hebrew. That's the first place he goes. Yes, he does say, I fear the Lord. He identifies himself with God secondarily, but it's first with the people that he is propping up because for him, his identity and his nationality became kind of a functional God for him because whoever this is, or whoever they are in our life can become that functional God in our life. And I'll tell you this, false gods, they don't deliver. They produce instability, not stability. When our identity is shallow spiritually, we end up being frantic and prop up those functional gods like Jonah did. Props up, yeah, I'm identified with with these people. His identity is what mattered most to him. When he was faced with loyalty to his people or loyalty to God's word, he picked his people. He chose his nation over displaying God's mercy to another nation. And it, it can happen to Christians. Tim Keller said this. He said, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power or approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of self-identity. Where's our identity in? And even furthermore, thinking about Jonah, he was self-absorbed. <coughs> when, our identity, when our identity is self-absorbed, we're blinded from truly seeing ourselves. Jonah was blinded, and he became apathetic to the mission as a result of being blinded. There are other characters in Scripture that are blinded, like Peter was blinded by the things that he could do for Jesus rather than delighting in Jesus, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's fired up about doing something for Jesus, so he cuts off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers' helpers there, right? So Jesus has to heal him. He's like, I'm going to do whatever for you, Jesus, yet Peter, Peter can't prop up that, that pulling up your bootstraps because he denies Jesus three times. Our identity can't be in a cause for Christ or what we do for Christ. Our identity needs to be in Christ. Again, Tim Keller goes on to say, if you base your identity on any kind of achievement, goodness, or virtue, you will have to live in denial of the depth of your faults and shortcomings. You won't have an identity secure enough to admit your sins, weaknesses, and flaws. Jonah had that opportunity. When they came and started asking him questions, Jonah could have said, 
God, I have sinned. Forgive me for my sin. Good people, I, you are in this peril because of me. Forgive me. And when they're asking him, what should we do? Rather than saying, well, toss me in. I'm going to keep running from what God's called me to do. He could say, stop rowing hard for the shore, but start rowing hard for this place called Nineveh. You've already tossed everything off the ship. Let's row hard this way. Because if we row hard this way, I'm, I'm certain that the seas will calm because that's where the Lord wants me to go. He could have done that. But he was blind to the condition of his heart because he was focused on himself. And even continuing, when our identity is self-absorbed, uh, what, what will happen is we begin to exclude others. Others, the people who aren't like us or that we want to be like, we, they start to become, become distant from them. They're different. They're the other. Start to judge them, start to be hard towards them, could even be hostile towards them start to marginalize other people rather than seeing them as image bearers of God. We see them as other, even blaming them for things that are happening in our world. Friends, you want to know why the world's a mess? Because we have an enemy. His name is the devil. Satan, Lucifer, the angel of light. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces. The battle is to be waged on, on our knees primarily, not that we don't do practical things to be a means of grace. But that's who the enemy is. It's not someone who's different. It's not someone who doesn't know Christ and lives a life completely different than what you are. May our eyes be open to that reality because the reality is, is the only way we're going to love others and be different than Jonah is we need to be, have our identity rooted in what Christ has done. We are in Christ. This is so important to us. We're going to have a, a series in the fall speaking to identity, our identity as a church, because we need to be rooted in what Jesus has done. We are going to function wrongly in, out of wrong identity until we see that we can't live this life apart from God's mercy. And God's greatest display of mercy comes when we see that he has sent a substitute. So mercy is extended by giving a substitute. That's what we're going to see about God's mercy. He sent a substitute, and we see the flavors of this in the story because Jonas becomes, Jonah becomes a substitute for these people. But even before Jonah becomes a substitute, we see in the scriptures that a substitute is given, a temporary substitute called the scapegoat. So take you back to a little bit of study. Remember when we were studying Hebrews, we, we talked about this, that every year for the nation of Israel, there was the Day of Atonement where people's sins were atoned for. And they would take two goats. They would, they would, have, a, they would have a sacrifice on an altar and then they would have a scapegoat. So there would be one that would be sacrificed on the altar, and then they would take the goat, and they would, the high priest would put his hand on the head of the goat, and then the goat would leave 
Leave the, the nation, leave the people. Remember, the people would gather. They would have the tabernacle in the center. That was the place where God was. That's where people had the presence of God and knew nearness of God because God came in the midst of his people. And though they were sinful, their sins were atoned for. But then the goat left the camp. The consequences for the sin left the camp. There was freedom because the scapegoat took that and went away into the wilderness. We learn about that in Leviticus. So that's where we learn about this, and yet Jonah is an example of the scapegoat to us. But he's, he's an imperfect substitute. The scapegoat was a temporary substitute because they had to do that every single year a sacrifice had to be made. But then Jonah, he's, he's an imperfect substitute, but he is a substitute. He takes the role of the scapegoat for these mariners. We see the wrath of God coming upon these with the boat being stretched to almost blowing apart. And even though Jonah was willing to perish rather than preach, he ends up being a substitute which brings peace for them. And God uses human agents to display substitution. God uses you to display substitution. You may not be tossed off a ship so that everyone can be peaceful. But you make sacrifices. You lay your life down. And Keller also said, whenever we keep a promise or a vow to someone despite the cost, whenever we forgive someone whom we could pay back, whenever we stay close to a suffering person whose troubles are draining to her and all those around her, we are loving according to the pattern of substitutionary sacrifice. Our loss, whether of money or time or energy, is their gain. We decrease that they may increase Yet in such love, we are not diminished, but we become stronger, wiser, happier, deeper. That's the pattern of true love, not a so-called love that uses others to meet our needs for self-realization. So when we serve, we aren't using other people to meet our needs. No, we are reflecting Christ. We are reflecting Christ's substitution. So parents, when you spend hours on end giving up your sleep and your time to instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. It's far more significant than you're just teaching them how to eat and take a shower. You're displaying for them Christ and his substitution. Friends, when you walk alongside someone who's going through a trial over time and you give of your time and your resources and time from your prayers to be lifting them up and it's hard for you, it's more significant than you're just doing an act of service. You are displaying Christ and his substitution. But as we do these things, we do them temporarily. And they are means of grace. And Jonah, what he did was temporary. These sailors, they are going to get back on the ship some other time and take someone else's cargo from one place to another, and they're going to hit storms again. They experience that peace in that moment. They're going to experience it again. 
So even though he was temporary, there is a permanent substitute, and his name is Jesus, because Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 41, as he told his disciples, when he was present, something greater than Jonah is here to get their attention. They would have been familiar with this story. They would have been familiar. That's crazy what happened. Something powerful happened. God did something miraculous. I mean, we're not even done with the book of Jonah. There's so much more for us to discover. They would, that would have immediately come to them. He's like, something greater than Jonah is right in front of you. Because right in front of them was the one who would pay the penalty for sin once for all. Hebrews 7.27 says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We don't have to wait for the annual sacrifice. We don't need to go to a place to make a confession to have our sins absolved every single time we struggle. No, Jesus died once for all sins for those who would trust in him. And in Mark 10, we learn, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus redeemed those who would trust in him. He became a propitiation for us. I love talking about that word in our church because Jesus came and he took upon himself the full and complete wrath of God. We don't have to continue to feel the tempest of the sin and the effects of sin because Jesus took on himself the full and complete wrath of God so that we don't have to experience it when we see God in eternity. But yet, it also brought God's favor. It brought it brings the peace that only God can bring. And I know in our day, like talking about the wrath of God is not popular. It's not. People don't want to talk about the wrath of God. No, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath. I only want to believe in a God of love. And what they're really saying is I only want to believe in a God of my making that lets me do what I want to do and tells you to can it and get out of my face. But if we didn't have a God of wrath, we wouldn't have a God of justice. And people are crying out for justice all over. So many evils are happening. We're longing for justice. And we have a God who is just and will carry out justice. But if we understand we have a God who does carry out justice, it helps us to understand in a far more significant way the magnitude of his mercy. Because we should be objects of his wrath. We should be experiencing the just punishment that we deserve, but we don't because he sent his son as a substitute for us. As Jonah was tossed into the sea, producing peace for the sailors, so Christ went to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath to its fullness and when it was complete, he said, it is finished. And when we repent and put our trust in Christ, we experience the peace of God that the world can't know. It doesn't mean the storms of life don't seem to keep, don't, don't completely stop. But in our hearts, we experience peace as we talked about last week. 
See, Jonah and Jesus are different because Jonah was cast out for his own sins. Jesus was cast out for the sins of those who would trust in him. Jonah came near to death, and as we see at the end of our passage, he doesn't die. He goes through a trial, but as we read in the story, he doesn't die, yet Christ died for our sins. Jonah went under the water for a time, but Jesus fell under the complete weight of sin for us. And as the great hymn, Man of Sorrow, states, love this line, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Sealed my pardon with his blood. And so what's left for us is to respond. Respond to mercy's substitute. Respond to God's mercy because that's, that's what the sailors did. That's what the mariners did. They came confronted with the reality of their need. And they stopped playing the God game, just crying out to this, that, and the other thing. And they turned to the one true God. And you can turn to the one true God who came in Christ. And so we can turn to Christ. So if you've never trusted in Christ, you need to know God has continued to allow you uh, in his mercy to be in the spot that you're in because he's pursuing you. He's not sending you to the depths of the ocean. He wants you to turn to him, and you can because of what Christ has done. You simply need to pray, Father, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus and show me the depths of your mercy, and he will. But that is true for all of us. We all need to turn and respond. When we understand the depths of this story, the depths of his mercy, and we're aware of the substitute, and we're going to revisit this again and again and again until Jesus comes back because we need to know that our Redeemer lives and that his mercy is evident. And as we come to the end of the text, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we'll talk more about that when we come back to the text next time. But here's the truth. God refrained from giving Jonah what he deserved and put mercy on full display. As, as soon as Jonah hits the water, the God whom he did not trust miraculously saves him. The mysterious divine mercy that Jonah finds so inexplicable and offensive turns out to be his only hope. Jonah doesn't drown. He's swallowed by a great fish. And in the midst of that prison for a few days, he comes to experience the wonder of God's grace and experiences God's mercy. And that's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to your mercy, that we wouldn't have to find ourselves at the bottom. But if we do find ourselves at the bottom this morning, I pray Lord, for those who are here this morning who have not trusted in you, you don't have to get yourself all fixed up before you come to Jesus. In fact, because you're in a mess, that, that allows you to come. He wants you to come, and he calls you to come. 
And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are here this morning struggling to come because we're burdened by life's trials or we're burdened by our own struggles of sin and think, God's done with me. Lord, remind us that you're not. Remind us that Jesus died once for all and our Redeemer lives and we are objects of your mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.